Welcome to the Cashflow Canucks podcast, where Canadian entrepreneurs and investors come to learn about wealth creation. Experts in their fields will join your host, Peter Lount, to share their successes, challenges, and discuss opportunities. Join me and my guest, David Barnett, as we talk about his Amazon best-selling book, Invest Local, a guide to superior investment returns in your own community. David has been building his profile as an expert in the field of small and medium-sized enterprises. In this episode, he shares how he got into the business of helping and advising entrepreneurs. You don't want to miss this. Welcome and enjoy. I have here David Barnett to join the Cashflow Canucks community um, and podcast. Uh, David, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Can you take us a little bit about what you do for a living? Yeah, sure. So, so what I do every day is a couple different things. They're all complimentary. So I, I, a consultant that helps people buy and sell businesses, number one. And number two, I have a, a whole bunch of educational products. So online courses, books, et cetera, which basically cover the topics of buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized enterprises. So my area of expertise is all around doing a transaction or getting ready for a transaction or helping people sort out systems and things either to get ready for a transaction or after they bought to try to get their business to, to function better. And, um, you know, sort of little tangents that come off of that transaction orientation involve things like um, helping people figure out, you know, how to borrow money in a business. And then on the opposite side, how investors can figure out if it makes sense to invest privately in a local small business, which is something that is not really talked about a whole lot. I know in the world of, of private investing, we talk a lot about real estate, you know, hard money lenders and real estate and second mortgages and stuff like that. And um, there is a whole other world of potential out there, which is a lot easier to get into because the dollars figures tend to be much lower. And it's also more accessible in that things like, you know, when you if you're going to register a mortgage, you need a lawyer. If you're going to register a lien on a piece of equipment, you don't. So it's it it really is a whole other different kind of world of opportunity that um, that I discussed in the, in a book that I shared with you. Yeah. It's, um, so before we dive into the specifics, how did you even get into this? What was your journey to to get to this point? So I've always been interested in business. And, um, you know, when I was a teenager growing up, I was always trying to figure out different ways that I could earn money doing different things. I went to university and studied business because I thought that they would turn me into a businessman. And in reality, by about third year, I figured that I realized they were trying to turn me into what I call a fortune 500 bureaucrat, just sort of a, a middle manager in a big organization, right? You know, when you spend your time studying case studies involving, you know, General Electric entering a new market in another country, you realize I'm probably not ever going to be involved in anything like this because my interest was in the businesses that we see when we're driving around in our cities, the, the, the sort of the majority of businesses, which are the smaller ones. And that's what I was interested in. And, and I was very fortunate, Peter, because when I got out of university, First thing I did is started a little business with a friend. He ran off to Toronto with a girl, left me holding the bag. I decided I needed to get a job. And so I got a job as a sales representative with the Yellow Pages. And this was at the end of the 90s when the Yellow Pages was a really important medium because in those days, if you typed plumber into Google, you no matter where in the world you were, you got a plumber in California. 
And if you lived in Toronto and you had a water leak in your pipes, you needed a plumber down the street. And so people would grab that book and they would look up, you know, a plumber in their neighborhood. And so in that role, I got to go out and meet with the owners and managers of all those small, medium-sized businesses that, that I'm interested in, sit down with them, talk with them about the kinds of customers they want and who they want, you know, calling them on the phone or coming through their door. And that was my real education in small business. And I got to learn about all these different industries. I, I realized, however, that the writing was on the wall. Google was eventually going to figure out how to do a better job of, of being yellow pages than yellow pages. And so uh, I did leave in 2005 and I started a business with a friend. We tried to buy a very famous junk removal franchise, but we were told that uh, our market was too small. So instead what we did is I read a book called The E-Myth by Michael Gerber and tried to observe what those guys were doing and tried to rip them off as best I could. And so uh, wrote an uh, operations manual and all of the different tools and KPIs and everything for this junk removal business. And we started that business and we did really well. We grew to a staff of five within a year. And eventually that partner, I've learned not to get into business with partners, but eventually that partner wanted to run off and become a, a financial planner. So I realized that it uh, my heart really wasn't in serving consumers. My heart is in serving business people. And so I said, you know what? I'm not interested really in this either. So that was the first business I ever sold. And so I sold that business. And then I got into, um, I became a, a broker of commercial debt. So I, I took a training program from a company in California. And they taught me how to arrange uh, loans and leases for business and how to build packages, funding packages, et cetera, to make presentations to leasing companies or to, or to lenders. And so I, I opened up an office as a debt broker for businesses. And it was really interesting because I went and I met with all the small business bankers along the main street here where I live of, of the big six banks that we have here in Canada. And I said to them, like, if you can't help one of your business clients get funding, maybe I can. And you know, if, if somebody goes into, you know, the big red bank here in Canada and they're told, no, you can't have a loan and they cross the street to the big blue bank. If that bank approves their loan, you guess what's happening? The mortgage, the car loans, the investment accounts, everything is going to end up being dragged across the street. And that's what the bankers don't want. So by referring their clients that they couldn't help to me, I would set these people up with leasing companies and other sort of B grade lenders that would not be a competitive threat to the other lines of business that the bank had. And so they started sending me people and it worked out really well. But here's the funny thing that happened is that about 50% of the people they turned away once they came to me and I sat down and I worked through their, their issue and, and what they were trying to do. And I built a proper funding package. I was often able to bring it back to the same bank that referred it to me and get it funded. So it's because, you know, business owners are expert at running their business day to day. They're not finance experts and they can't, they're not expert at building cash flow forecasts and all that kind of thing. And that's the stuff that the bankers need in order to figure out if it makes sense to make a loan or not to know that million dollar question, will we be repaid with interest if we make this loan, which is the most important thing to the lender, of course. And so, and eventually the, the financial crisis hit 08, 09. So those, those lenders I was using to help people get loans 
you know, half of them went out of business within a three month period. And so I realized that I needed to make a big pivot because I was soon not going to have any income myself. And so that's when I realized that there had always been this void in my market for competent, qualified people to help people buy and sell businesses. I saw a lot of different transactions when I was a finance broker. People were coming to me looking for money to buy a business. And I could see that the intermediary had no idea what they were doing. And these were real estate agents, sometimes accountants, sometimes lawyers who were trying to put a deal together in hopes of collecting a, a fat commission, but they really didn't understand what they were doing. And I saw some awful things. I saw some buyers lose some deposits because of the way contracts were written. I saw people invest months and months and months of time into a deal that would never, ever be funded because you know nobody knew how to set the price. The seller basically asked for a certain amount. The buyer negotiated it down a bit to the point where they felt it was good but the number was still double what it should have been. And so by the time it got to the lenders, they were all declining it. And then it would come to me. I would say, yeah, the reason it's not getting funded is because it's stupid. It doesn't make sense. There's no way you'll ever cash flow this. And, and so I recognized that there was a real need for someone to help people buy and sell businesses. And so I joined up with a big international chain of business brokerages called Sunbelt. And the reason I chose them is because they gave me access to training. And so over a two and a half year period, uh, I earned a certification in being a business uh, intermediary. And that certification had been around since the late 70s, Peter, and I was the first person in New Brunswick ever to earn it. Wow. So that's just how underserved the market is. And in general, in Canada, this industry is far behind where it is in the United States, and tax law has a lot to do with that. But so I, I became a business broker and over a three-year period, I sold 36 businesses here in the region. And that sounds like I sold a business every month, but that's really not what happened. What happened was I would sell a couple of businesses and then go seven, eight months without selling one. And then I would sell a bunch and then go several months without selling one. And so it created this cash flow roller coaster that was insane. And it was the most interesting and challenging work I've ever done because you've got a real problem to solve. You know, if you, if you like to be a person who figures out puzzles, it's a, it's a great thing to do because you've got a seller who has one set of needs and wants and a buyer who has a different set. And you have to figure out how you can put these two things together while getting the blessing of bankers, accountants, and lawyers and other advisors to have the whole thing come together. And it's a huge feat of financial acrobatics to make this happen. And when it finally closes, then the broker gets paid. So the, the, the issue is that sometimes it took me a year or two to convince someone that I was the person to sell their business. And then it could take up to three years to sell the thing. The last business I sold at the end of 2011 was a business I signed up in 2008. So I worked on that file for four years before I earned anything. Right. And so I eventually realized I can't be involved in this anymore because it's crazy. I can't even make a, a household budget. When I went through one of those dry spells, nine months without a closing, I would have all my office overhead. I had to pay my assistant. I had to pay my landlord. I had to pay all the bills, my advertising, et cetera. And I had to cover my household budget during that time. So a lot of people get drawn into business brokerage because they see the big commission rates. They, they think, oh my God, 10, 12% for selling a business. If I sell a million dollar business, I'm going to get a check for 100 or 120 grand. And that's true. But what they don't realize 
is that you can, you can work on it for more than a year to get that check. And while you're doing it, you're going to be getting into debt, likely. You're going to be using up lines of credit or credit cards. And then once you, once you close the deal, if you close it, because a lot of deals fall apart at the 11th hour and they never come back together. And so a lot of energy gets spent on some of these deals that never end up closing. And um, once you have the money, you pay off your debts and then you're afraid to spend because you don't know when you're going to get the next one. And, you know, when people see, especially in business sellers, when they go, oh my God, why would I pay you 10 or 12%? Um, my real estate agent says he can sell my business. He only charges 5%. The real estate agent is an expert in selling buildings. Buildings have nothing in common with businesses, but in a lot of provinces, you have to have a real estate license to be a business broker. And this is where the confusion comes from. Some real estate agents will feel that because they have the same license, they're qualified, but a qualified business broker actually does much more than what a real estate agent does. If you want to compare the two kinds of, of transactions. So when people would come to me, the first thing I would do is an evaluation and show the seller what the business is worth and what the business will likely sell for. So in that way, I was kind of doing the job that a real estate appraiser does with respect to houses. Then I would go and I would find a buyer, which is what a real estate agent does when you're trying to sell your house. And then I would work with the buyer and use all of my skills as a finance broker to build a package for them, usually including a business plan, financial forecasts, et cetera, so that they would qualify for the loan. So if you want to compare that to the real estate analogy, I was also doing what the mortgage broker does. So a business broker will do all three of those roles to try and get the business sold. And the reason why it's typically you know, all done by one person is because business brokerage is a secret market. If people in the general public find out that a business is for sale, the business can actually be ruined. Customers don't want to buy from someone they know is, from, is for sale. They don't know what the future holds. They don't know if their warranty is going to be good, et cetera. And so it's all going to be done in secret. And this is why it's generally done by one person. So I got out of that. Um, and because of the cash flow roller coaster, I became a banker and I was covering a couple of provinces uh, for American Express. I started to handle their, their mid sized company revolving credit programs here in Atlantic Canada. And while I was spending all those hours in my car traveling between different prospects and clients, my phone started to ring. And it was people calling me up saying, hey, I'm trying to buy a business or I'm trying to sell a business. People give me your name or more than one person has given me your name. I want your help. And at first I would explain that I don't do that anymore. And then I realized these people really need help. They don't know what they're doing. And they, the advisors are going to, this one guy, Bob said to me, my lawyer and my accountant keep telling me what I need to get out of the deal, but neither seems to be able to advise me through the negotiation." And I, I said, yeah, that's not really their thing. You know, the, the lawyer is advising you on the risks and he can do the paperwork. Some lawyers are good at negotiating, but it's not really their thing. You know, it's, it's, and when they do it, it's very adversarial. And business brokerage is not done in an adversarial kind of way. It has to become collaborative. The two parties have to come together with the common goal of having the transaction occur. If they don't, it's extremely difficult to ever get a deal done because there's so many unknowns with respect to a business. You know, when you buy a house, you can have the home inspector inspect it and you can be pretty sure what the condition of the house is. And you can have an appraiser tell you what it's worth in the market and you can be pretty sure what the value is. But with a business, 
you've got receivables, payables, you've got customers thinking about moving their business to other places, you've got employees that you don't know yet that they have a drinking problem. Like there's all kinds of unknown issues in a business that are going to affect its performance. And so there's different ways that we build into the structure of the transaction, a way to ensure that the seller helps the buyer achieve success. And so they really have to become a team in order for it to, to work out. If it remains adversarial, what ends up happening is the buyer just starts to see all these potential risks and they don't feel comfortable moving forward unless they discount those risks into the price. And then that, of course, doesn't work to the, to the benefit of the seller. And so you have to have a really motivated seller to agree to that watered down price if you have an adversarial kind of process. When you get collaborative, you, you can change the deal structure so that it works to protect the buyer's interest while securing a reasonable price for the seller so that both parties can see how they're both benefiting and they want to work together. The seller then becomes sort of a coach or mentor to the buyer, helping to ensure a greater chance of success because they've got access to all that experience and knowledge. So, so all of that stuff is important and it's an entirely different kind of skill set that you would find uh, in other kinds of transactional processes. And so people were calling me and I would say, look, I'm not a broker anymore, but I could help you as a consultant. I'd have to charge you an hourly rate. And people were just saying, yeah, okay, what do you charge? I'll pay you. I need your help. And it sort of opened up a whole new way for me to use the skills I acquired as a business broker in helping people buy and sell businesses. But my business model became more like the lawyer or the accountant versus the real estate agent. Because now what I'm doing is I'm doing a certain thing to help help a buyer or seller, and then I'm getting paid for doing that. So it's, it, it, it's a different way of helping people through these transactions. Um, it's worked out very well for me and it works out very well for my clients because you know, one of the reasons that business brokers have to charge such a high rate of commission in addition to doing three different jobs at once is because a lot of the deals that they touch don't end up closing. And so the people who build successful, profitable businesses that can sell, they end up subsidizing the broker's efforts when he works with the businesses that have problems that don't sell. And so I, you know, in hindsight, it kind of seems silly that someone who did a good job building a business ends up paying the price to help the people who didn't do a good job, whose businesses will never sell, because the broker needs to earn a certain income in order to make a living. Now, under my current you know, way of doing businesses, everybody who I work with pays. And so as a result, people end up paying less than they would pay a business broker in commission. But every single time I work with someone, I'm getting paid. So it works really well for buyers, sellers. And with the buyers, there's no inherent conflict anymore. You know, when when you go to a car salesman and you say, I'm trying to figure out the best way to get around town, he is not going to tell you to get a TTC pass, right? He right. earns his living selling cars. And so now my income is not tied to the transaction. I'm perfectly free to give honest advice to anyone, which a good broker does anyway, because you realize if you, if you, you can't convince a buyer to do something they're not going to do because by the time they get to the closing table, they won't do it anyway. You're just wasting your time. But it's, it's amazing that, you know, there are a lot of business brokers out there that haven't closed a lot of deals. They got to make their car payment. And, you know, I've always said that money is a very poor motivator, 
but the lack of money will motivate people to do things in all the wrong ways, you know, and that's, I've seen that so many times where people will do something that they would never normally do because there is a certain amount of desperation that starts to take hold. And so you are doing this as a, um, so you moved to the consultant side and then you've also added in the educational part of it as well. Well, the educational part kind of grew at the same time because back when I was still working with American Express, I wrote my first book, which is the one that you had read, um, Invest Local. And the whole idea behind Invest Local was just, I was sort of daydreaming about some of something that was, you know, unique that I could share with people. And I, you know, back when I was doing my finance brokerage, there were a couple of times, let me tell you a story. So there are several leasing companies based in Toronto. Um, one of them is a huge, you know, multi-billion dollar company. They mo- most of them are multi-billion dollar companies. And I arranged a lease for a truck here in New Brunswick. And this multi-billion dollar company sent me a limited power of attorney to act on their behalf. Right. And it was very limited. It basically said, we're giving David the, the power to act on our behalf to register the license for this truck. So I took that piece of paper down to DMV and I licensed the truck. And so the truck title was their, their name, big leasing company, operator, local guy who got the lease, right? And so as I would start to learn the paperwork that these guys were using, and I saw the lease contracts and I saw the process that they would use to perfect their security, putting their name on title in the case of a leasing company, I just began to realize how simple it was. It's just not that hard. And the leasing companies and the and lenders like banks need to do deals of a certain size in order to make money. Because, you know, if you're even if you're charging 25%, if it's a thousand dollar deal, 250 bucks isn't going to cover the cost of the people who have their hands on the deals. Right. So I would start to get these inquiries from people who had relatively small opportunities. One of them was for a little restaurant that needed to replace a commercial gas oven. And basically they wanted to see if they could get financing on a $3,500 item. And most of the leasing companies that I was dealing with just wouldn't even look at that. They would say, you know, put it on a credit card or whatever. And a lot of small business people would, but this, you know, this guy got one of my advertisements and he thought maybe I could help him. So I, I thought long and hard about it. And I thought, you know what, maybe I should do this. Because I was looking at money I had in the bank and it was earning one or 2% interest. And I knew that I could probably charge this guy like 14. And I could hold the title to the oven. And if he didn't pay me, I could go take the oven. And maybe I would end up with the oven in my garage. Maybe I would end up trying to sell an oven on Kijiji. I didn't know. But with such a low dollar point, I was willing to learn. And so I basically plagiarized some of the contracts I had passed that had passed over my desk. I went through the same process I had learned from the leasing companies and I did a lease on the oven. And over the course of the next two and a half years, the guy paid easy peasy. I collected all the money and I earned a rate of return that was far in excess of anything I could get as a retail investor in the bank. And I realized that the risk really just wasn't there. You know, we, we've been trained to think about this idea that taking a higher risk should get you a higher rate of return. I've come to realize it's just not true. The banks 
are some of the most profitable enterprises that we have in this country. Nobody can say that they take any risk. Everything has collateral. Everything is secured. Everything is secured in a couple different ways. And so, you know, yes, they do take losses from time to time, but it's very few and far between because they know how to protect themselves. And so the whole idea behind the book, and, and I had gone looking for books on private lending before, and like you had mentioned before the call, Peter, a lot of what I had seen related to real estate, you know, real estate transactions. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I, I don't want to do like a mortgage on a house. It's big money. It's a big investment. In my mind, it was a big risk, right? I want to learn how to do these other kinds of things. And so I looked everywhere for information. I found some interesting books. A, a lot of it always led back to private real estate lending. And so eventually what made me want to write the book is the fact that I realized I've been looking for this book for years and I could write it now. And so that's, that's what I did. I put it together. Wow. And um, as I said, I, I read it on my iPhone. So <laughs> I bought a copy and I have to go deeper into it because there's many, many examples that you use. And um, I mean, you did, you've done a lot of research, you've been to events, you've got some mentors in, in the area as well. Um, can you maybe share in, in another example um, in terms of how you've used it? Because um, I mean, I went into it, you're, you're doing things like, um, one is like the, I guess a, a vehicle, one is uh, factoring. So that's mm -hmm. based on receivables. Um, do you want to share another one that uh, maybe not sure. from the book or so, another example? So basically what I, what I recommend in the book for new people is that you find out what the limit is in your local small claims court for suing someone in small claims court. And your first few deals should be under that limit. So that if anything ever did go wrong, you have inexpensive access to the legal system, okay? And, and then I teach you a couple of like golden rules in the book about how to do these deals. And the first one is that you source them through your actual social network. So you, you know, all the deals I've ever done relate back to people that I know personally to one or two degrees of separation. So if you let people know in your social circle and your business circles, et cetera, that these are the kinds of investments you get involved in. And they know someone who's looking for money for something in their business. It's far more difficult for that business owner to default on a debt to a friend of a friend than it is to default on payments to the big faceless evil bank. Right? So you want the social connection because you, you want to leverage that desire or willingness people have not to let their friends down. That's number one. And number two, the second big golden rule is that the, the loan or investment you make in that business has to improve the business, which is a, a basic rule that bankers use that, that a lot of people don't quite clue into. You know, a lot of the times when you go out and you, you look at things to do with investing, they talk about buying equities in business, buying shares, this book tells you not to get involved in that in any way. That's way too risky, right? You know, if you, most small businesses are run with a view to enhancing the lifestyle of the owner. So the owner will take certain personal expenses if they can, like their teenage kid's cell phone, and they'll put that cell phone in the business because it's cheaper for the business to pay for it than it is for them to, to take a T4 income, pay income tax on it, and then pay for their kid's cell phone. And so if you're an equity investor in that business, 
you know, you have a right to dividends. If they're doing things that reduce the profit, then the dividends aren't going to be there because the owner is enhancing their lifestyle. Well, that's just going to lead to conflict. You're going to say, hey, you traveled in business class when you went to that conference. That means there's less profit for me. And, and you're going to get all bent out of shape, worried about how the business functions. You don't want to do that. What you want is you want to say, look, you need this piece of equipment. I'll make you the loan. You make this payment every month for this many months. I'll get my rate of return. And now I don't care how you run your business. That's how you want things to be. We're not, you know, lined up in the dormitory, you know, with Mark Zuckerberg trying to buy shares of something that's going to become a multi-billion dollar industry. What the book is about is about how to control risk while earning rates of return far in excess of what you can get in any kind of retail investment by putting your money into a bank or money market fund or anything like that. It puts you in ultimate control. Yeah. And, and you know, people are concerned all the time about risk. So when I do these deals, I have security, there's collateral, there's something physical. And the terms of the deals that I do are something that attracts the entrepreneurs. So for example, if you went to the bank to borrow money, even though they ask for collateral, they often ask for a personal deficiency guarantee so that if they ever had to seize the collateral and sell that thing, if they don't get enough money, then they're going to sue you personally, right? And they're going to ding your credit and maybe they're going to report to your credit bureau, which could create problems for borrowing money elsewhere. When these entrepreneurs come to me for financing, I'm not involving the credit bureau in any way. And I usually don't ask them for a, a guarantee, a personal guarantee for deficiency. I do always ask them for a personal guarantee, though, for the return of the collateral. So basically what I say is, if anything happens in your business and you can't pay me, you personally guarantee that you're going to deliver that item to me where I want you to deliver it to. And then we're going to be done. And you'll be clear of it. And you know, in business, you never know what's going to happen. There's all kinds of uncertainties. But to know that there's an out with respect to that piece of equipment that I'm financing, it, it makes it a lot easier for the business owner to want to do business with me, even if I'm charging them a couple percent more than what they might pay at a bank. And I know that if I have that thing and it's only a year and a half old, I'm going to either be able to sell it for what's owed or what's more likely, I'll be able to find someone else in that business who's willing to take on the payments and just continue, you know, to where the other guy left off. Especially right now, credit is about to become super tight with this whole COVID thing that's going on. I know people who have excellent credit scores who've been denied credit cards. I know business owners who are saying that, you know, their banker is just telling them, oh, wait, we're busy with the COVID thing. We'll get to you later. But now this later has been dragging on now for two months. And so there's the banks are worried. They don't know what the fallout of COVID is going to be. Right now, with all the government intervention and the deferral of payments, everyone seems to be okay. People are acting like things are okay. But once the CERB and the wage subsidy and all these other things come to an end, then we're really going to see the effect of this you know, economic shutdown on the economy. And the recession could be a bad one. The banks know this. This is why they're trying to limit exposure. They're trying to limit how much new credit they give until they can see where things are going. And so you see opportunity of this um, as long as you're doing it the right way, as long as you're lending with security. Um, yeah. You learn from those guys. I mean, 
they've perfected this process over a long period of time. And what, what I always recommend people do is that they leverage their knowledge. So I advised a guy once he was down in, um, in, in uh, Pennsylvania and he was a pizzeria owner and he'd been in the pizza business for 30 years and he'd done really well and he had a lot of money and everyone was telling him to open another location, but he was a hands-on guy. He was working like 50 hours a week in his pizzeria. He was always there. He knew that he didn't possess the skills to really put those systems in place to trust managers, to trust employees. And I give him kudos for knowing himself. Okay. He, he knew that if he opened a second location, he would drive himself nuts trying to be in both of them at the same time. So instead of that, he read my book. He said, you know what? I could take the money I have and the knowledge I have about pizzerias. I could be lending money to other pizzerias who need to upgrade their equipment, put in new ovens, upgrade their counters, up, you know, refresh their marketing, what have you. And I can look at their businesses and understand what's really going on because I'm an expert in pizzerias. And so that's what he did. So he, he started to make investments in these non-competitive pizzerias that were outside his trading area so that he could take advantage of his skills and his money and not have to go and worry about what was happening there on a Saturday night like he did in his own place. Wow. So if you have experience with welding, if you have experience with vehicles, if you have experience in any kind of trade or set of equipment, then you can really take advantage of that experience to set yourself apart from other investors or lenders. One of, um, one of the examples I give in the book is, you know, you could, for example, if you were an expert on welding equipment, you go to an auction maybe, and there might be some businesses closing here soon, right? You go to an auction from a business that's liquidating and you see a welder that might normally sell for $4,000 used in its current condition, but you can pick it up for 1800 bucks. So you buy it for 1800 bucks and then you turn around and advertise it as a $4,000 welder, which its normal used value might be with financing available, right? And so then all of a sudden you turn that $1,800 investment immediately into a $4,000 note at interest which is then going to deliver to you over the course of a couple of years, your profit with added interest. And it creates a stream of revenue. And the reason you were able to take advantage of that deal is because you knew what the machine was worth because you're familiar with that kind of equipment. And excuse me, that's the kind of, that's the kind of leverage of your own knowledge that can really set you apart as an investor doing these kinds of deals. And uh, what about, um, so you talk about financing, what about leasing as an option? Yeah, so, so leasing is just a different way of financing something for someone, which is even more secure because the lessor holds title to the item. So if anything ever happens and you have to go get the item, you already own it, right? You, if you lend something to someone and you secure a lien on it, depending on where you are, there might be a judicial process or you might have to go to court and get you know, a judgment in order to go seize your collateral. If you are the owner of it through a lease and they don't make the payments, then it's your property, right? So it's, it's just a different way of setting it up. In, in Canada, where you have HST in Ontario, um, if you were going to do a lease, you have to deal with the sales tax 
And so you would want to have an entity set up that was an HST registered entity because you would be paying the HST when you bought the item. And then when you collected your payments every month from someone, you'd be charging them the HST. And so you would want to be an HST registrant so you could have those flows washed out over each other. Right. Um, yeah, there's just so many opportunities. The other one, receivables is another one. Just to get in. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mentioned factoring in the book as a, as something you can do. It, it really is a more of an advanced thing because, you know, if you have a business that's established and they have other kinds of loans or lines of credit from a bank, then they probably are already engaged with things like general security agreements with the bank. So the bank has security on the receivables. And if you want to get involved in financing those receivables, you get into this process where you have to get the bank to agree to allow you to do it. So it can be more complex. What, what I recommend people do is that they find a factoring company that they can work with who will pay them a commission or a finder's fee if they find an opportunity to do this. And, and I've done that several times in the past where I've simply handed off the opportunity to a factoring company and then I get a check in the mail for some cut of whatever the factoring company has been earning. Um, there's all kinds of different things that I describe in the book. You know, there's, there's the inventory, having a third party own inventory that you draw down to save money. And I give the example. So if you buy a hundred widgets a year for your business and they're worth like a thousand dollars each, if you buy them in China, maybe you can get them for half price, but you have to come up with a huge amount of money and a big investment in inventory. What, what you can do is you can find a third party investor to buy the hundred widgets from China. They keep them in a different place and they sell them to you as you need them. Right. And so the investor can build in a rate of return maybe 10 or 20% rate of return for themselves, you're still saving maybe 40%. So there's, there's all kinds of ways you can re-examine how business is done if you're willing to pull things apart and have different people do different parts of it. And that's some of the other stuff that I explore in the book. It's really about changing the way you think about things. And as I mentioned to you before, Peter, you know, about a third of the emails I get from readers who've read the book are actually from entrepreneurs who got the book because they were having trouble accessing capital and they, they bought the book because they wanted to see how they could better present opportunities to investors because they were looking for capital to grow their business. Right. Yeah, no, it's um, definitely, uh, I mean, you said there was an opportunity, you saw a major gap in there and you, you filled that gap with that book. Right. And so you the book in itself, you've also got um, some education. Can you talk about some of the that that you provide? Yeah, sure. So I've got online courses. Um, in working with my different consulting clients, what I started to notice is that the same questions just kept coming up over and over and over again. And I had been doing some live seminar workshop events here in the region when I was a business broker. And so what I did is I went back and I kind of remade some of those workshops and presentations. Some were three and a half hours, some were eight hours. And I turned them into online courses. So I've got a couple of different online, there's six of them now. One of them is an expansion upon the local investing thing where I actually go into the paperwork and the underwriting process and everything for doing one of these local investing deals. It's called how to do local investing deals from A to Z, I think. 
Um, another one is about how to buy a business, business buyer advantage. And it's up to 11 and a half hours now because I recently added sections on buying a business in a recession, um, buying distressed businesses and the, how COVID is going to change deal making. And then I have a, um, exit planning one, uh, for people that want to sell a business. I've got, uh, a cash flow forecasting and business plan writing program, uh, which is really long. I think it's like, I basically, I recorded it live with a group of students so I could get immediate feedback and I did it over a 12 week period. So all of those videos are in that program where people basically they learn how to build a cash flow forecast and then use that cash flow to build financial statements, income statements, balance sheets, et cetera, and then take all that information into a presentable document for going to seek financing, either investors or from a bank. So that's the cash flow forecasting one. And then I also have my systems one um, called build a business that people will want to buy, which is a step-by-step methodology of how to introduce small business systems in a business that's already operating. That one came out of a lot of frustration when I was a business broker, because I would meet these people who wanted to sell a business and they were completely disorganized and everything was in their head. And I, and I knew from the Michael Gerber book that people had to create systems in order for a business to function normally. And if anyone came into a buyer came in to look at them and how they lived, they would go, Oh my God, I can't, I don't want to live this way. I don't want to have to run my business with a hundred different sticking. I met a guy once his office looked like big bird's nest because the wall, the desk, the computer, everything was covered in yellow sticky notes, right? It looked like, it looked like big birds feathers all over the place. And I'm like, no one's going to come in here and look at that and find the idea of owning your business attractive because they're going to see how, anxiety ridden and stressed out you are living in this environment. And, and so you need to get some systems in place. And of course, people wouldn't do that. People wouldn't just read the book and and follow the advice in the book. And it's funny because I always thought that people existed on a, on a continuum between, you know, really smart and not so smart. And, and then I would think to myself, if I can understand so clearly why these systems and organization are important, how come these people who built multi-million dollar businesses can't see the same thing? And it was before I, I had discovered the Myers-Briggs personality type indicators where there's actually four different spectrums of personality. And so my personality type is one where I can see very clearly the way I want things to happen in the future and then build a backward plan of how to get from A to B. It's very easy for me, but not everyone is like that in their personality. So I built a, a process of how to systematize businesses. And that's what people learn in that course, how to build a business that people will want to buy. So the advantage of the online courses is, you know, when I do ad hoc consulting with people, I charge a couple hundred dollars an hour, but the, most of the courses are a couple hundred dollars. So people can literally spend hours and hours and hours with me at a small fraction of the normal rate. And so it's much more economical for people who want to um, learn this stuff and it, it helps me leverage my time. So all of the courses, all the books, the videos I have on YouTube, there are over 400 of them now. Most of them are generated from questions that people have submitted. You know, all that stuff, basically people can find from my blog site. Right. Um, and so What's the, can you specifically tell us what are the, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah. If you go to the blog site, 
um, there's different tabs and one of them is work with David. And if you go into that one, my email address and phone number are in there. Okay. So you can find me very easily there. So it's uh, davidcbarnett.com is the blog site. And there's links out of there to the different online courses, to the YouTube channel, et cetera. And the, the audio of my YouTube videos is ripped and put out uh, as a podcast on all the major podcast services. Um, mostly under David C. Barnett, small business and deal making is what it's called in most of them. Well, that's great. I, I mean, David, thank you very much for your time, for um, sharing your story, imparting your knowledge. Um, I think it's definitely gives, you know, for me, yeah, I definitely was seeing the only other way to to uh, lend privately was literally real estate. And um, just from this conversation and from reading your book, I've got a lot more ideas in my head for sure, which uh, I'm going to have to follow up more of your content to uh, to learn more. Awesome. Well, Peter, I had a great time. I love, I love to get together and have chats like this and, and uh, maybe I'll come back again next time we can talk more about buying businesses or, or anything else. Yeah. Sounds great. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you for taking time to listen to the Cash Flow Canucks podcast. You'll be able to find out more about our guests and how to connect with them in the show notes for this episode. Would you like to learn the secret way savvy investors and smart entrepreneurs are turning their expenses into positive cash flow? Then you want to read the Infinite Banking Concept book. For a limited time, I am giving away free copies of this book valued at $30. If you want a copy, just email me, Peter, with the subject line book to peter at cashflowcanucks.ca. Again, if you want a free copy of the Infinite Banking Concept book, just email me at peter at cashflowcanucks.ca with the subject line book and your mailing address, and I'll send you a copy. You'll finally understand how the wealthy elite is turning everyday expenses into cash flow. Just email me at peter at cashflowcanucks.ca.